Would you stand as we read from Acts 8? Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Growing up, my closest friend, a guy named Wes, was two years older than me. So when I entered into high school in ninth grade, he was entering into 11th grade and had been in the high school for some time. As I entered high school, Wes invited me to sit with him at lunch. And, but I quickly realized that in joining Wes and his table for lunch for a few times, that Wes was sitting at a table of misfits. It was all of the people who were outsiders. They had either been kicked out of some social group, never made it into one, were awkward, were disenfranchised, were alienated from the rest of the population, and they find, found some community together at this table. At the time, I was way too interested in being an insider to stay at that table. A table would have compromised my social reputation for some time, and so I moved back over to the ninth graders and pursued working my way up through the uh, social ladder right, of the freshman class of Oneana High School uh, in, in that year. Our passage today is very much about being an outsider. It's also a passage about God's perspective and his promises to the outsider, which may be rather surprising to you or a bit unexpected in certain ways. So we're going to consider this Ethiopian eunuch, this strange character that enters the story of Acts, right? someone who doesn't even receive a name, and the significance that he plays in the story. And to do that, we're going to have to see first the plight of the outsider, 
And secondly, the hope of the outsider. And then the outsider made insider. And finally, ask what it means to be an insider. So first of all, what is the plight of the outsider? Who is this character that we're considering this morning? Well, we know he's Ethiopian. Now, Ethiopia or Ethiopian is a term we use today. It didn't exist in the ancient world. It's referring to the ancient kingdom of Nubia, which went from uh, the north of Sudan all the way through modern-day Ethiopia and into the south of Egypt. It was one of the major empires of the ancient world. Uh, it's referred to a few times in the Old Testament. It's called the Empire of Cush. And the Queen of Sheba, who comes to visit Solomon, was from what becomes the kingdom of Nubia. And in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Cush. It was considered uh, to be the very remotest parts of the earth. So even as uh, Jesus has commanded that the apostles take the gospel to Jerusalem and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, this is in part some degree of a fulfillment of that promise. Luke is trying to communicate that indeed that is what is happening even in this encounter. Now, not only do we notice that he's Ethiopian, but we also notice that he's rich. He's traveling in what probably isn't so much a chariot as some kind of carriage that has the room to invite Philip up into when Philip arrives on the scene. Right? That wasn't a cheap way to go. It's a high-class way to travel in the ancient world. Not only that, but he's, tr he's traveling with an Isaiah scroll. And to have any kind of printed material in the ancient world was a very high-end luxury. And he has the freedom to travel to Jerusalem. This is a guy of very high standing. And, of course, it mentions that he's over the entire queen's treasury. So he's the elite of the royal court uh, in the kingdom of Nubia. We also can observe that he's Jewish, or at least a Jewish proselyte. Why? Or how do we know that? Well, why has he come to Jerusalem? To worship. And what's he reading? The Isaiah scroll. That's an important note because what's going to be important in a few weeks is Luke will go way out of his way to communicate that the first Gentile convert to Christianity, the first non-Jewish convert, is going to be Cornelius. And he doesn't want you to read, even though this individual is from Ethiopia, he doesn't want to you to read it as a Gentile convert. It's a Jew recognizing Jesus as Messiah. And the last thing we read about him is that he's a eunuch. Now, you cannot possibly wrestle with this passage or understand its significance in the canon and in redemptive history without having a very clear understanding of what a eunuch is. So if you have any foggy notion of what a eunuch is, a eunuch in the ancient world was someone who had their testicles crushed or cut off, either intentionally or by accident. Right? Now in Judaism, nobody was doing it intentionally. It would have been you know, little Timmy's terrible accident with the oxen while plowing and growing up. But in other kingdoms, like the kingdom of Nubia, it could be done intentionally, right? These kinds of individuals would have been groomed to serve in the queen's court or over the king's harem for obvious reasons. Right? Nothing's going to happen as a result of them fulfilling their roles in those places of responsibility. Now, the reason that it's essential to understand what a eunuch was in the ancient world is because of what the law said regarding a eunuch. Right? We're asking, what is the plight of an outsider? Well, you have to understand that the law of God, the Mosaic law, made a eunuch an outsider. Deuteronomy 23.1 says emphatically that any eunuch cannot enter the assembly of the Lord. In other words, 
If you were a eunuch, you could not enter the temple. You were declared by the law an outsider. Leviticus, Leviticus 17 says that if you were born to uh, the descendants of Aaron and you were rendered a eunuch, you had to give up your priestly duties. You were no longer permitted to engage them. So the Mosaic law declared that a eunuch was, was someone that was less than. They were not whole. They were an outsider, never allowed to participate in the full worship liturgy of the people of God. So now think about that for a minute, right? If you're a eunuch, you've already got a pretty bad lot. You're not going to have any descendants, right, which makes you already on the periphery in the ancient world. You're probably going to end up poor and destitute because when you're too old to work, you don't have any children to take care of you, which was the ancient world's insurance policy. And on top of all that, if, that if, if, if your life wasn't going bad enough already, God says, just to make it clear, you can't go into the temple. Why would God do that? Why would this God of love and grace that we celebrate be so exclusive to someone who's already physically suffering? Now that, frankly, is a hard question. And I don't know that we can fully answer that question, that we would be utterly satisfied, but I think there are a couple of important points we need to keep in mind in trying to answer that question, which is to think about the nature of the law itself. What was the purpose of the Mosaic law? Well, it was, it was to mark out Israel as God's people. Okay, well, how did it mark out God's people? Well, God's people were called to be different. They were called to be holy and separated. Okay, well, what did it really mean to be holy? Well, it meant to be holy was to embody God's character and to reveal that character to the world. If God is whole, he's not partial. If he's not broken, if he's not less than, then his people right, couldn't look at something that was broken or less than and, and necessarily think that it was fine or whole. In other words, laws were intended to communicate it to Israel something about God. Now, this is hard for us to understand, and we, frankly, we can't understand all of it. You can think of things like the dietary laws. And God says, if you're going to be my people, beef and goat, okay. Shrimp and pork, not so much. Well, why? Nobody knows. Right? There's no clear answer on why some foods were clean and other foods were unclean. But it started to teach Israel, oh, there's a difference. Some things are clean and okay. Some things are unclean. And so maybe as we engage this world, we have to ask what honors God and what doesn't. Take the Sabbath. By resting on the seventh day, you identify with God. Well, why? Well, God rested, and maybe he desires for us to rest. Maybe he wants to communicate to us that as we engage in worship, that's the truest form of rest we'll experience. You take laws of circumcision. How in the world? Removal of a foreskin identifies us as God's people? Why all of these were laid down and what they communicated exactly to Israel in the ancient world, we don't necessarily know fully, but we know that it's giving them a notion of what it means to be set apart, of what it means to be holy, of what it means to acknowledge that some things are clean and some things are unclean. Now, all of this is going on, but you have to also keep in mind the, the, the terminus point of the law, where the law is, is headed and why it's headed to that point. Because when you get to Paul... Right? In Galatians, Paul will say, well, the law, its entire purpose was to serve as a tutor. 
It was intended to serve as something that trained Israel in its, uh, in its young, young state so that it would be ready for young adulthood or adulthood when? When faith came through Jesus Christ. Well, how did it prepare them for that? Well, Paul says one of the chief purposes of the law was to define sin. Before the law came, you didn't know necessarily that you were sinning. When the law came, you knew what sin was. Okay, so the law tells me not to steal. If I steal, I know I have sin. But the law is doing more than that. And it has to. Think just for a moment if the law only spoke to things that you, you weren't supposed to do. If it only spoke to actions. Then our entire conception of what it means to be alienated from God and what it means to engage sin would totally be only oriented around actions. And so we could always think to ourselves, well, I can always do better. Tomorrow I'm not, gonna be, I'm not going to steal and I'm going to be fine. And it would really give us a very truncated view of what it means to be alienated from God. But when God hands down a law that says, the eunuch can't enter my temple, you begin to say, oh, maybe we've got a much bigger problem than simple actions. Maybe there's a brokenness that not only is related to what we do, but actually related to who we are. And I can, I can maybe have the misguided notion that I can control what I do, but I can't change who I am. A eunuch can't do anything to render himself acceptable so that he can re-enter the temple. So the law, in some capacity, is, is intended to train Israel to, to prepare not only Israel but the entire world that God's rescue must come from God's self and that humanity cannot rescue humanity's self. So this is the purpose that the, the law is serving. Even when we read these very difficult passages, about the eunuch. And so that's the plight of the eunuch. The, the eunuch is declared an outsider. Now that's hard, but it's not the end of the story. Now we have to turn, because the Old Testament, not only in the law, declares the plight of the eunuch, but it also, later on in the prophets, grants hope to the eunuch. In fact, it, it says something that's remarkable and you know, these are the kinds of things, even though I struggle and wonder, why, you know, this law about eunuchs, God, why, why did you do that? And we can take a stab at an answer. It's when I read passages like the passage in Isaiah that, that communicate to me that the God of the scriptures, of the Christian, Jewish and Christian scriptures, is so different than anything you see in the ancient world. Because the prophet Isaiah says this to the eunuch. Let not the eunuch say, uh, this is Isaiah 56. And remember, keep in mind that the, the eunuch is in the Isaiah scroll. In fact, he's only three chapters away from this passage, which very much could have been on the same section of scroll that he was reading. Uh, Do not let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What does God pledge in Isaiah? It says, the eunuch that has no, no hope of a legacy, I will give you a legacy that is bigger and better than sons and daughters. 
you will have an everlasting legacy, an everlasting monument to your name. And of course, your children in the ancient world particularly were your monument. Right? That's what testified to you and your significance. And God says, this I will make happen. And you think, well, okay, how's that going to happen? Right? How is God going to bring this about, that this will be the reality uh, for the eunuchs in the ancient world? You wonder if the eunuch had read this. What is this hope? pinned on Isaiah 56. And had he, had he read the law? Did he even know when he went to Jerusalem that he wouldn't be permitted to go into the temple? And so he sits in this tension. Right? Being, we give, have every impression that he's familiar with the Old Testament and he exists in this tension between I'm declared an outsider according to the law and yet God has this beautiful promise for me. For eunuchs, totally unique in the ancient world. How do I make sense of this and how in the world is it going to come to pass? How will it be made reality? And this raises the question of how does the outsider become an insider? The, uh, the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And you can read that with me as it occurs in Acts 8 and verses 32 and 33. It comes from a very famous section of Isaiah which is called the servant songs which speaks of someone who will come and suffer on behalf of the people. And the eunuch reads, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth, and his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For this life is taken away from the earth. What does the eunuch ask? He asks the same question that Jews were asking since this was written. Right? Judaism, as soon as the suffering uh, or the servant scrolls and the idea of a suffering servant was written about in Isaiah, asked the question, who in the world is this talking about? Is it talking about Isaiah himself? Is he referring to himself in some kind of capacity? Or is he talking about someone else who is to come? And Jewish theologians wrestled with this and wrestled with this and, Phil, and the eunuch asked the right question. He says, who is this about? Is it about the prophet himself or about someone who is yet to come? And, and Philip says, you know, in essence, I'm so glad you asked because now we know. This passage is, is about the man named Jesus who came and actually was the suffering servant who is denied justice and willingly, silently went to his death so that we might be redeemed, so that Israel might be healed. And the eunuch is sitting, how in the world, thinking, how can these promises come to pass? How can an outsider be made an insider? And then he realizes, he hears the story that Jesus, God himself, has come and made himself an outsider so that the outsider might be made an insider. Right? You, you see the transition that's occurring. Jesus, who exists in, in perfect trinity, in perfect justice, in perfect holiness, right? in perfect love, gives all of it up. Right? He's sitting at the premier table and says, I will go and enter into the world and become an outsider in this regard. And then once he arrives, you would expect him to be the insider of insiders amongst his own people. And he's not at all. He's exiled from his people. He's cut off. He's taken outside the city right, to die the most, uh, the most despicable, humiliating death that he could die. And is hung on a tree so that he's cursed. Jesus is the ultimate insider who becomes the ultimate outsider 
so that all outsiders might be made insiders. And the eunuch begins to understand. If Jesus has become an outsider, like me, like the eunuch, so that I can be made an insider, if Jesus was perfectly whole but became less than whole in some capacity, and I don't, I don't pretend to be able to articulate that to you, but when, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We must say that the, the Trinity is some, somehow less than what it is intended to be. And in that capacity, Jesus becomes less than that the eunuch and that his people might be made whole in him. Right? It's the great reversal in the history of the world. That the, outsi- or the insider becomes the outsider, that the outsider might be included. And so this brings us to the eunuch processing what Philip has led him through. All the scriptures and this good news about Jesus. And if it's good news to the eunuch... That means that the eunuch is no longer outside of the temple. And so when the eunuch says, oh my goodness, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? So often you may hear this spoken of or read about it and it's, the notion is, oh, well, the eunuch has come to faith and prayed the sinner's prayer and now sees water and is ready to be baptized. My goodness, do you think given Isaiah and Deuteronomy, that's what's on the table? This is what the eunuch is saying. The eunuch is saying, Philip, if I've understood you correctly, you're saying that no longer do my crushed testicles make me an outsider, make me a second-class citizen in this kingdom who's never actually allowed to enter the presence of Yahweh. You're saying that Yahweh has run me down and made me an insider. My condition no longer prevents me from being baptized. That's what's going on here. Someone second class has been loved and welcomed by the grace of Christ into his family and made a full brother and sister and given a legacy. What does it mean to be now an insider? You know, the eunuch might have gone back and said, well, I'm included now and I want to make my, my group small. One of the things you have to realize about the gospel itself is that Humanity exists on a notion of, of this deep desire to be an insider, right? You know this. You want to be an insider in a certain neighborhood and at a certain level of your job and at a certain socioeconomic level and in a certain social group and on and on and on, right? That desire is innate in us. We think it grants us some degree of significance. We long to be recognized as the insider. But what does it mean to maintain an insider status? There is no insider without an outsider. You know, so, so to maintain any notion, right, which is a notion that humanity is committed to, that there's an insider state, means that we have to maintain an outsider to define the insider which means we always have to be committed to a second-class citizen, someone who's ostracized and alienated so that we feel important. And the Ethiopian eunuch may have gone back with that notion, said, finally, I'm an insider. Let me keep people on the outside. Let me celebrate this, this newfound faith that I have in the story of Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what happens to the eunuch, but this is what tradition tells us, the early church fathers says that the the eunuch went back and so boldly proclaimed the gospel, right? The significant portion of Ethiopia was converted. 
Ethiopia today has the largest population of Christians in all of Africa. Could it be that these are the innumerable descendants of the man who would never have a child? Right? As the gospel goes forth, and he is given a monument, a monument that will last into eternity, a monument that far exceeds anything that he could have done by biological reproduction. Now, some of you are outsiders. And to you, I would say, why be an outsider? In all the stories of faith in the world, where do you get a story that is absurd as this? That a God of such power and strength and love would make himself an outsider so that you could be invited in, even after you had rebelled against him. Most of you probably think that you're an insider. You see yourself as having been unified to Jesus and as a result made part of his people. Well, what does it mean for you to live as an insider? What does it mean for you to look and move toward the outsider? We could say a couple of things briefly. Certainly, it's hard not to think of, um, of being, of, uh, in a sense of being bullied. You know, if today, in today's world of insiders and outsiders, and particularly of, of those of you who are in middle school and in high school, it is a hard time to be in those settings. And some of you are bullied. And if you are bullied, no, recognize that God is the one who utterly commits himself to the outsider, to the one who would be bullied to change his story and to give him a monument and a legacy. Right? Otherwise, why in the world would you even have this story in, in the book of Acts? Now, some of you are bullies. And you're tempted to hang out with the bullies because you want to be an insider. And you need to give that up. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't have anything to do with those people. Except in the case that they would hear the gospel and might repent, that's great. But for any people who make their living and define themselves and go through life by deciding, let's make sure they're outsiders so that we can be an insider, that's contrary to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so you have to make a choice whether you're going to live with Jesus or live with that group of insiders. The adults, right, we all know that in some way or capacity, we spend way too much time investing and thinking about how to, how to be a better insider, how to be in a new level, how to be in a smaller group, right? Again, our thinking has to change as well. It has to change in the direction if, if we are called to be holy, just as we said, which hasn't changed from the law to Christ. We're called to embody the character of God that is represented in the incarnation, we look to Jesus who became the ultimate outsider to invite insiders in. So where can you sacrifice? Where can you pick up your cross and follow after him? Where can you sacrifice your rights and privileges so that you can actually extend the invitation to an outsider and say, why would you not become an insider? Come join us. There is no bar. There's no elitism. There's no inside group. Come join and be unified to Christ and be made new and be made whole. The one who is perfect made himself less than that you, no matter what you have done or what you are, can be made whole. And he who was an insider became an outsider that you might be an insider. I don't have high school to go back and do over again. Uh, but if I did, I'd sit at that table every day of outsiders. Because not only is that what Christ has called me to, but by this point in my life, I know how silly the pursuit of being an insider is. 
And there was more joy and more freedom at that table of outsiders who weren't playing the game than there were at, was at any table that I sat at. Right? And so the invitation to all of us right, is, is to realize we are already on the inside of the most important group, those of you who have faith in Christ, that has ever existed in the history of the world. So why do anything but extend that invitation to the outsider? Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you this morning. We thank you. We can hardly grasp the nature, the extent, the quality, the quantity of your sacrifice that you, being the ultimate uh, insider, you, you had everything and you were willing to give it up. You were willing to engage uh, something that's so far below you, so decayed, so corrupted, that you might redeem it. Uh, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your grace. We pray that you would, you would comfort us and encourage us in, in all of our striving to be better in our own eyes and in worldly standards. Would you remind us that uh, you love us and have made us whole? And out of that, would you also remind us that uh, we are given a mission to extend that invitation of the good news to all outsiders, to help us to think about the outsiders in our midst, to help us to to be bold and gracious and loving and to always uh, be ready and indeed to seek out uh, extending that invitation. We ask for your grace in this and pray that you would encourage us at your table this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.